This podcast is brought to you by Charles Morgan, CEO of First Orion Corporation and author of a new book entitled, Now What? The Biography of a Finally Successful Startup, published by Entrepreneur Publishing. Please listen to podcast number 700 for the full interview with author Charles Morgan. In Greg's interview with Morgan, they discuss his bumpy journey from the initial investment in his small startup to having to rescue the organization from near certain financial collapse, to taking over as a leader and spending nine years guiding the company to success in First Orion's mission of providing scam and spam protection to major telecoms. The real-life lessons that serial entrepreneur Morgan shares in his book and podcasts are sure to benefit entrepreneurs at all experience levels. Please listen to podcast number 700 with author Charles Morgan. And if you want to learn more about Charles's book, please visit www.thecharlesmorgan.com. Thanks for listening to this wonderful podcast with author and entrepreneur Charles Morgan about his new book, Now What? The Biography of a Finally Successful Startup. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Todd, as I do all the time, I like to thank my listeners um, who return again and again and again from around the world. For all of you out there that have been listening, supporting Inside Personal Growth for over 14 years, we appreciate your support, your continued listenership. And today, joining me from Boston, Massachusetts area. Are you in Boston or are you outside of it? Where are you, Todd? Up in the suburbs of Burlington, Massachusetts. Burlington. Uh, we have Todd Rose, uh, who's a professor at Harvard, and he is going to be speaking about actually two books. We're going to divide this into two podcasts. Uh, the first book is called The End of Average, How We Succeed in a World that Values Sameness. And Todd, I want to let our listeners know a little bit about you uh, before we proceed into my questions for you about this book. And, and how it will help our listeners. Todd is the co-founder of Populance, a popular impact organization dedicated to advancing our understanding of individuality to transform how we learn, work, and live so that all people can live fulfilling lives in a thriving society. He's also the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he leads the Laboratory for Science for Individuality. Todd is the author of Dark Horse, which will be the second book we're going to be talking about, along with his co-author, and don't let me mess this name up, Todd. How do you say his name? Ogie Ogus. Ogie Ogus, okay. And the best-selling author of The End of Average. Uh, Todd was born and raised in northern Utah. Uh, after dropping out of high school, he obtained his GED, GED, and started attending night classes at Webster State University. He eventually received his doctorate in human development from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and completed a postdoctorate fellowship at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Uh, he lives in Burlington, Massachusetts. I know with your lovely wife, and do you have two children? Two, two boys. Two boys, yeah, I saw pictures of them. So <laughs> yeah, great. Well, it's a pleasure having you on the show and you taking some time to um, to be with my listeners. And Todd, I think we want to start at the beginning because, you know, you had a pretty rough past. Um, you know, you dropped out of high school, as you said in that introduction, you got your GED, 
you ended up working in a factory um, and I presume kind of raising your children is what it sounds like. And at one point, I, I remember you saying that you were on food stamps. Yeah. Um, tell our listeners a little bit about your journey from high school dropout to the head of the mind brain education program at Harvard. It's got to be a good little story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's kind of the origin for a lot of the things that I care about now as a scientist as well. Um, yeah. So as you had mentioned, um, you know, for me, school didn't work. I, I was raised in rural America in, in a very, very conservative um, town. And, um, you know, it, it just didn't fit that like I, I got behind in school. I was, I was, I was a super curious kid in a place that really valued conformity and that was just never going to work. And um, so, so, you know, it didn't work. And I, not only did I uh, drop out, I mean, drop out, it makes it seem like it was my choice. Like they, they basically told me I had to leave because I, I had a 0 0.9 GPA um, and it was like started my senior year. So there's no chance that I can graduate. And they said like, you're just wasting everybody's time. Um, and so, you know, I, I ended up, dropping out um and not not too long afterwards my girlfriend um who's still my wife i always have to say that and you know 25 years later um uh found out she was pregnant so you can imagine in rural utah that didn't go over very well um and so here here we are starting our life now uh you know a couple of years later we had two kids i was um working a string of minimum wage jobs like just the kind of jobs you can get when you don't have a high school diploma um and I was just bouncing around and like we were on welfare and it was frustrating for everybody. Right. And um, no one seemed to know <laughs> what was wrong, uh, least of all me. And um, I really, I got lucky in a couple of ways. So um, a lot of folks kind of just thought I was lazy. Um, and I can, I can kind of see that actually, you know, if you can't stick with even a minimum wage job <laughs> to support your family, something's probably wrong, but um my dad, luckily, we were, we were actually golfing because in Utah, golfing is not very expensive. And um, he said, you know, I've been thinking about it and um, I, I don't think you're lazy. He said, I, I, I just think you always need to be motivated. Like if you're doing things that you care about, you're really good. And when you're not, you're not. And um, he said he felt like what I needed to do is figure out what mattered to me and stick close to that my whole life and, and things would turn out okay. And he said, you know, the problem is, is that there are plenty of jobs that would sort of check that box for you, but you can't get there from here, from where I was then. And he said, so we talked about options and he said, you know, you could start our business, but I'm like, I have no business sense whatsoever. So like um, he said, or you go to college. And that was the first time I ever thought, well, maybe I should go to college. Right. And um, it was weird because my dad is the first high school graduate in our family. And luckily he had decided when I was a kid that he wanted to go to college and he went to school at night and he became an engineer. And like, so I watched that transformation. So I, I knew, I knew it did something. I knew going to college had some effect on, on you as a person, but also the, the family by extension. The problem was the school had been terrible for me. <laughs> like, why would it, why would I think it was going to be any different um, this time around? But I didn't, frankly, it was out of desperation. Like what else do I do? I can't like, no kidding. The last job I had before I decided to go to, college, I, I actually was, um, I left the factory and I, I took a job um, in home health care where, I, no kidding, I went to people's homes and gave enemas. That was my job. And now, 
it's honest work and it needs to be done, but it's not something you really want to do for the rest of your life. So, no, um, no, you could have become a proctologist from that, I take it. Right, right. Yeah, I think I'd had enough. So I was like, that, that path was ruled out. But so, so I, it really was out of like, I don't know where I need to go, but I need to, I can't stay where I'm at. And I needed mm -hmm. to do right by my family. Um, mm -hmm. And so my, uh, my in-laws, and everyone, they, everyone pulled together what little money we had and said, look, we can help. Basically, we can help cover the first, you know, semester's tuition. And then you've got to get a scholarship. But it's just not going to work. So um, I started. I went and got my GED. And I went and enrolled in night classes. I still had to work. Um, so I worked during the day. I went to school at night. And I started my journey. And what's interesting is um, that it is in that process of, like, absolute necessity that I, that I was able to sort of shake off sort of the old ways of doing things and try to figure out, like, I have to make this work. So what, what do I need to know and be able to do to make it work? Um, and I think for many of us people, my wife even says to me, she said, why do you keep doing these podcast shows, you know? Because I have a passion for learning myself. Hmm. But I also have a passion of sharing what it is that others know as well and building yeah. a community around it. And, you know, this has been a nonprofit show for 14 years and I spend hours a day doing this. Right. Wow. And so, um, you know, when you look at that, the, I think somebody said, do what you do, even if you don't get paid for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so your contention is as a result of that, that there is no really what I call quote average person, no quote right. average student. I know our son, um, one of my, my younger son, not my older son, my younger son had a really tough time. Uh, we finally ended up putting him in one of the alternative schools from high school mm -hmm. where he graduated um, because he didn't fit into yeah. the system that had been designed to, you know, go through the normal courses. So it was project-based school. So you say that education needs to be form-fitted to the individual. And my wife was a school teacher for 25 years, and we were talking about you this morning. How do you go about doing this form fitting um, and do it sustainably with success? I mean, that was yeah. one of the questions they asked on CBS as well. Yep. So like to that part, um, I could say like, so I think there's basically three things, but let me tell you like a little bit of stuff like, yeah. So how I, how we got to this idea of like that this design is the problem, right? Like I was able to, at, at Weber State University, I was able to figure out that, there are things about me as an individual that really mattered and it, and it didn't matter if it, if it didn't matter to anyone else. Right. And I had to figure that out, what motivated me, um, how I learned and make choices based on that and, and sort of ignore in a lot of cases, the typical suggestions. Right. So, um, and a couple of big things for me that, that, that really changed the game. Right. So, for example, I never took remedial math because it's the most taken and felt course in the country. I'm like, why would I start out with that? That doesn't make any sense. So I started with the classes that were most interesting so I could build study skills. I also ended up in the honors program, which seems really weird, but um, I found out that it was actually not about more tests or more work. It was actually a different kind of learning. It was about debate and argument and like writing persuasively. And I thought that sounded amazing and it turned out to be a great fit for me, right? So um, by doing that, I ended up graduating with straight A's um, and then got into Harvard for my doctorate, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's when I get to Harvard and I'm working with one of those pioneers in the field of what's called the science of individuality, a guy named Kurt Fisher. 
and he tells me one day, he asked me, how, how's it going? And I told him, not too bad. But I always assumed that I had to figure out some hacks, right, some workarounds because something was wrong with me, right? And, like, and he says, you know, you know that's not actually true, right? He's like, and so he starts to lay out how the choices we've made, this belief in an average person and how we've designed our education systems and our workplaces and, you know, as I've said in some of my work, even even the cockpits of fighter jets at some point around an average person that turns out we like we can prove doesn't actually exist. And so I realized like a lot of the challenges that I had faced were just by design. And that was incredibly frustrating to me. The idea that like it didn't have to be that way. Right. So to your question though, about like, okay, so if you can create more personal and more personalized education, create better fit, right. Between the individual mm-hmm. and their environment. It's actually not rocket science. It, we actually do know how to do it, and it is scalable. So it really it involves three things. Um, the the first is that you need flexible environments. Now, by that I mean uh, you cannot have stuff designed for an average person. You know, we don't. We have, in our cars we have adjustable seats because it would be ridiculous to to assume everyone's like five foot nine, right? It doesn't make any sense, and you don't need to do that. Um, so we have whole approaches in education called like universal design for learning, where we can expect that all of our curriculum materials, especially the digital ones, are designed for the wide range of variation that kids bring to the table. That's mm-hmm. doable. It's even in federal law. So that, that's, that's easy, probably the easiest thing to do. Okay. Um, the second is that you absolutely have to get back to trusting teachers, right? Because there's only so much that you want the technology to do. This is fundamentally about a teacher knowing a kid, right? And, you, and you've got to be okay with that. And I think a lot of times when we when, when we actually say, try to so when you say trusting a teacher do you mean that giving them more autonomy yes yes i do because right because... now i think our systems don't well they're they're leaning that way look we were in the piscean age so uh as we've moved out of that piscean age into this and you cite all kinds of neurological studies by michael miller and then mm-hmm. this uh the scientist uh adolfe in the 1800s how they came up with the average man you know, how we adopted that flawed thinking, I don't know, but hopefully we're way beyond it now. Uh, or hopefully we're moving in a trajectory to change that. And I think that's what you're talking about here is yep. how, what are the three uh, areas that need to happen to really have this individualized uh, learning environment, right? Yep. Yep. And And the thing is, is what's important is that, you know, individualized or personalized does not mean isolated and it doesn't mean selfish. Right. It doesn't mean that kids get to do whatever they want all the time. It doesn't mean that they're in front of a computer all day. What it does mean is that we start with the idea that each child has dignity and worth and their individuality does matter. Right. You don't get to ignore it. You don't get to to, to squeeze them into a box because it's easier for us to manage um, and that our obligation is to help develop them and allow them to make a contribution to society. And, you know, Maybe even 20, 30 years ago, that would seem sort of pie in the sky, but it's not. Like, we, we actually know how to do it. We can. It's far more about the mindset of the public and our willingness to demand that we do this. Do you believe, Todd, that with the evolution of our species even, right, and the neuroscience and what's been going on and how computers have advanced people actually way back in the 1890s and all the way through the 1940s, which you termed, you know, a lot of this actually developed and then we grabbed onto it, that we've finally come to a spot where we can do this. Maybe 
it it wasn't a mistake. It was supposed to happen this way. Um, but the reality is when you look at it, it seems like, boy, we really, we were biased, right? Oh, yeah. Um, okay, and, and, and we can, right? So here, here's the thing. If, if people stop and think about the world they live in right now, everything, everything that's human facing is just racing away from one size fits all and trying to become more personalized, right? And there's a reason for that because deep down we know that our individuality matters. So this is true not only in consumer facing stuff, which makes a lot of sense, right? Um, right. But, but you think about medicine, right? Like, right. like every major advancement that we talk about now, especially in cancer, has come when we've stopped thinking there's an average cancer. And we realize that, like, understanding you on your own terms is the best way to understand cancer. And then you can build up patterns from there, right? So, and, and I can tell you, like, I don't know a single person right now, if, if they had to be treated for, say, colon cancer, it, it, we could say, look, we can do molecular fingerprinting, we can give you a, a, a personalized treatment, or you can have the gold standard average based treatment. I, I don't know anyone who's taking the average, right? So we are moving past that. The place where we're really, really, really locked in that is the most frustrating to me is around human potential. We still get, we still are willing to like view it through the lens of a bell curve, right? Where there's just, you know, only some people are worth it, right? Some people have what it takes and the rest of us just should be lucky for what we get. And like, so in education, you think about, you think about like the big standardized tests that we use, right? It's not, it's partly because they're standardized, but I could even go with that. It's it's that they, they are literally built around a bell curve. Like half the people have to fail no matter how good they do, right? So it's pretty absurd. And um, so we've got to push beyond that and realize that like each person actually does have something to offer um, and that a, a great and thriving society is one that really bets on each and every individual. Well, and I think when you speak about human potential, it, it re, I go to reflections with a author by the name of Stephen Kotler who – is a guy who wrote lots of books on hacking flow, right? So yep. getting people into the highest level of human potential and how do you hack that? Um, and the the ways in which we do that, I think is fascinating, but I think the demands that are being put on us to be in business more innovative, in school to be more creative, in whatever it is, it's, it seems like it's there. And that kind of leads me to this question that it, it's a bit of a conundrum. You know, you talked about Google and how Google would use their AI to kind of all these companies would use these hiring practices. So let's face it. Everybody goes through college. Everybody wants to get a job. Um, I don't always think that there's much risk in that. But I, I do. I will say that that is kind of a trajectory that lots of people take. And you say it's always jagged. You speak about Google and other companies choose the criteria to hire people. How has the practice of assigning a ranking score changed or has it also how has AI played a role in ranking people as potential candidates for hire? And if that's the case, how do we overcome talent blindness as you state? Yeah, so so ranking is changing pretty dramatically and I think for good because like in the past, you know, the people that create literally created ranking like a guy named Francis Galton, who was an open eugenicist, he was trying to figure out why some people are just innately better than other people, right? And like, it was it was pretty awful, really. Um, the the idea that there's just this one-dimensional thing called talent, right? And you're just like great in every context and situations, and we could just find those people. That's just nonsense, right? And and what we've seen is that companies now are realizing, like, at the end of the day, you do have to choose someone, right? Like, you you do have to make a selection. 
So you're trying to figure out who's best, but it's really best in your context, right? Like it doesn't, it's like very, very empty sort of um, consolation prize that you pick someone who was great in another context, <laughs> but not good in the one that you need them to be in. So where most people have gone is what we would call like performance-based hiring, where you're really looking for contextually relevant performance and then actually looking at who's better and, and you know than, than other people. So at the end of the day, it's hard to get away from, you still got to select, but getting very contextualized and getting away from one-dimensional things um, has been where most everyone's going. And now AI, to your other question, is AI has played a role in that so far. I don't think it's played as big of a role as people think. I think it has some potential in the future, um, largely, especially in areas that have a lot of big data, to discover like hidden patterns around talent, right, that, that allow us to see things we just couldn't see before. Um, I'm actually just as, just as terrified about it. I mean, not like might be an overstatement, but like the risk of it is that AI is only as helpful as the assumptions we make, right? So if we continue to carry in this idea of average and standardization and we embed those in our algorithms, then we're going to get those kind of things on the back end too. Right? So it's super important that we get to this place of understanding the importance of individuality, and that's where then AI can play a really outsized positive role. Well, I'm so happy that Harvard has this department and that there are schools that are thinking about individuality because, to me, it is a very important factor to look at the individual in each case. And as you did in Dark Horse, which we'll be talking about in a minute, you cite these amazing successful people as a result of this, you know, because they were able to develop that way and they had this passion uh, to do that. But we'll be there in a second. So you speak about to our listeners, you have the uh, concept of trait psychology and situational psychology mm-hmm. and why this feeds our biases when it comes to aggregating people and not looking that at them as individuals. So, you know, trait psychology might be the Myers-Briggs, right? The mm-hmm. Putting people through Myers-Briggs. Explain to the listeners, you know, for years, these tests have been used. Years and years and years and years. They're still used, right? Um, there's lots of them that have been formed besides just Myers-Briggs uh, to look at people. Um, what's wrong and what's right with those? Yeah, let's start with what's right. So uh, in particular, the Myers-Briggs. So the thing that I think that it has done that deserves just a lot of credit, right, is it managed to capture the idea that people aren't the same, but that there isn't a value judgment there, right? There's not a right answer on the Myers-Briggs, right? Like, it's just, it's important to know that people can be different. And I think that that's added an enormous um, amount of value um, in the conversations, especially in the workplace. The, The challenge with them and where this science I'm a part of, where it pushes it next, is really about the role of context, right? And I kind of touched on that briefly before, but it's it's this idea that like what traits are are are, are claiming is that if let's say <clears throat> I say I'm extroverted, well, it's literally the claim that I'm just an extroverted person, right? And it gives me a ranking. Right? I'm I'm in like the 85th percentile in extroversion. But if you think about what we're really after here is we need to be able to explain and predict your behavior or my behavior, not not some in on average across everybody's behavior, right? So for it to be useful to me in my own development, it better it better explain what I do day in and day out. And it turns out the problem with all of these trait-based tests 
is, especially in personality, is they have what's called the point three problem, which is that you can really never get them to correlate with real behavior higher than point three, which from a statistical standpoint means you're only explaining like 9% of the variance of people's behavior, right? So it, and we always were puzzled about it for a long time, right, in the field. Like, what's wrong? Are we doing, are we don't have the right traits? And then people came along and said, oh, because there are no traits. It's all about the situation, right? And what we've realized in this science is that it's a little bit of both, and, and you can model that. So what we look at is what's called if-then signatures. So let's say you're extroverted. Okay, but it turns out it's not always true, and what we can model is, like, the conditions under which you, you have high extroversion, right? So uh, it might be with friends that you know at, you know at an external event, okay? And then, but then when you're with people you don't know, it turns out you're not – you're pretty introverted, Right. So that kind of profile across different contexts turns out to be really stable. Like if you're extroverted with people you know at a party, I can basically bet you $1,000 the next party you're at with people you know, you'll be extroverted, right? Um, and so once we shifted from thinking there's just some trait that sits above every situation to realizing that it's the way you change in different situations that's really your signature, then we were able to increase our, we really can predict human behavior quite accurately there. And it becomes functional and valuable to me as an individual to know that about myself. Well, it's good to know that the testing mechanisms that are being used, especially those are still have an application in the field. And I think they are good for people in management to understand for people who are working with teams. There's a lot of for team sure. building ones as well. Those are really important. Now, Absolutely. one of the things that um, we we need to discuss, and then we'll wrap up this interview here, is you know businesses that are committed to individuality, and you cite Costco and Zoho University and Morningstar as examples of great places to work. Um, but more importantly, this this allowing this to happen, um, and and to change conventional hiring practices like we were just talking about a minute, this leads to what you call win-win capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, what actually happens when an employer like Costco or Zoho University or Morningstar uh, values the individual versus uh, doing the, the the same old, same old? Yeah. Well, Costco is a great example because, you know, so often when we go to tech examples, it's easy to dismiss, right? Like, Maybe they just have so much money or they're in a, a unique sector, but Costco is just bricks and mortar, you know, like most everybody loves Costco. They want them in their community, right? Um, and what's so fascinating about them is that they're in a razor thin margins industry, big box retail, right? Like, uh, and they compete head on with the usual suspects. And so what's fascinating is that Costco manages to have the highest wages in retail, gold plated health insurance, um, and just treats their employees in incredibly. And as it turns out, they actually are far more effective and efficient than even a place like Sam's Club or Walmart, right? And so what was fascinating to me is like, why, right? What, what's the difference? And so I got to spend time talking to the founder, Jim Senegal, um, and it was so interesting to think like from day one, he had a deep sort of philosophical commitment that like each individual person matters. Like they're not a cell on a spreadsheet. You, you can't think about them that way, right? Um, and he showed that, like, the second you are willing to just treat people as averages, it takes you on a whole different path, and you can't get that culture back. It's really hard. So, for example, um, they they focus on not only on the hiring side, which is, like, like 
like stop worrying about where people went to college or if they went to college. Like, do they have the ability to do the job or not? And be really clear about what it is you really need versus like, oh, I guess I want you to have have a degree in you know <laughs> marketing when I don't really need that, right? So being clear about that and not giving this uh, privilege just based on status, right? So I asked him like, well, would you hire? Harvard MBAs. And he said, of course, but they got to start by pushing carts or working a register like everybody else. And he said, you, you can imagine most of them don't want to. right? So, um, but the other thing, and the thing that's so fascinating about it at Costco is the way that they organized the company once you're in, right? So a, a deep commitment to developing people, right? Like they want you to be able to have a career there. They, um, they view management in a very different role. So like, whereas most of us think that managers are like bossing people around, they literally are like, you need to spend the majority of your time teaching people, developing them. That's your job. And they even have signs in a lot of their um, uh, com- uh, stores that for the management offices says, look, be nice to the people that, that you're responsible to because one of them is going to be president of the company someday. <laughs> like, and they mean it, right? There's, you can, there's a lot of growth potential. The other thing is um, offering people the option to try new things, right? Just because you came in in one space does not lock you in there. So one of the, um, you know, one of the people that, uh, that, I, that I profiled in End of Average was Annette Alvarez-Peters, who's literally the, the most powerful person in the wine industry because she's in charge of buying wine for Costco and Costco is just a gigantic like force. Like, like yeah, insane. Yeah, right? it's worth the wine. They're huge, yeah. Now yeah. you could imagine that to get the person in charge of wine, you'd want to get someone who had gone through a path of like, at a minimum, you probably at that time should already have passed the master SOM exam and like these things. She actually came through a crazy path of her own, right? She was actually a, a secretary. She was worked in like uh, as a buyer for like the cassette tapes and then tires. And then she turns out to have a knack for this. And people were really mad in the outside. Like, why would you put someone like this in charge? Now, of course, she's gone on to be just spectacular, right? And people are fine with it now. But their ability to just look at people and say, look, what do you have to offer? And how do we, how do we bring that out in the organization? Now, how is it win-win? Well, like, it turns out, right? You think, like, how can Costco compete like that if they're paying people well, they're bringing lots of people in, they give them great health insurance. When we had the, the Great Recession, they didn't lay anybody off. They actually gave everybody a raise because they're like, right. look, they're, they're hurting, right? So it turns out that the, the secret is when you build these places that really care about individuals, a couple of things happen, and it's probably not that surprising. Number one. They care uh, about the customers. <laughs> yes, they do. They, and they, they, they're more productive, right? right? They're more engaged, and they don't leave. So right. interesting compared to like retail has low turnover, like, low turnover. Yeah, they, yeah, like like their competitors, you know, the the usual suspects, like like a Walmart has like close to fifty percent turnover a year, right? Mm-hmm. That's how, how do you how do you have it's tough. What do you do when you have to replace half your workforce? So at, at Costco, after like the first year, that number plummets into single digits. I mean, people don't leave, and so there's this continuity and a commitment to the customer, and it, you realize, wait a minute. Like you can actually have a place that is genuinely good for individuals and good for the bottom line. You just can't have it if you start out thinking in terms of averages and treating people as sales and spreadsheet. Well, I think it comes to a couple of things, whoever the people are in accounting or the bean counters, I call them. You know, when you look at the margins Costco has versus the volume versus the pay they give their people versus how those people treat the customers, 
versus, you know, and, and it goes on and on and on. And the culture that's been created as a result of that, you know, Costco has the same kind of attraction that Apple does the people that yeah. are stuck on getting Apple computers, right? It's Absolutely. like, it's just like everybody wants to go there because it, you can get things inexpensive and you get them in multiples and what, whatever it is. My point yeah. is, is that, you know, I'm an avid Costco shopper myself. And my wife always says to me, why do you always go to Costco? And I said, because I love looking for the new things that they put up and I'm a bargain hunter, right? So it's like, <laughs> and I get treated really well. They always yeah. call me by name and blah, blah, blah. So my point is your, your points are well taken there. And I think for uh, a win-win economy, um, Costco has created it along with the others. And I just want to thank you for being on because The End of Average is a great book. It's a way for people to not only learn about all the things that we've discussed, but an opportunity to take a look and try and break some of these old patterns that I think people get stuck into. And you really cite in the first part of the book so many things that have become, uh, I'm going to call them biases, really. Um, and those biases still exist. And I think what your book does is wake people up to those biases to actually make a shift. Um, and I just want to thank you for doing that and for being on. And for all my listeners, uh, if you want to go learn about the end of average, you can go to Todd's website. It's just www.toddrose.com. You can learn there. We're going to put a link to the Amazon book itself. So you can pick it up there as well. Um, so you have an opportunity to do that. You can see his uh, interviews there because they are listed at the website, the video interviews in YouTube. And so if you go on YouTube and type in Todd Rose, you'll find some additional interviews as well. He's got a TED Talk out there. Um, so Todd, and that TED Talk happens to be on the uh, end of average, right? It does. It does. Right. So go take a look um, for all my listeners. Thanks for being on, Todd. Thank you.